From HerbMentor.com, this is HerbMentor Radio. You are listening to HerbMentor Radio on HerbMentor.com. I'm John Gallagher. My guest today is Kiva Rose. Kiva is an herbalist and teacher who focuses on local plant sustainability and helping people to practically work with herbs. Her blog, The Medicine Woman's Roots, at BearMedicineHerbals.com, it's one of the most celebrated herbal blogs on the Internet and a treasure trove of information. Kiva also directs the Anima Center in New Mexico, which runs wilderness retreats, apprenticeships, consultations, and distance learning experiences. Good afternoon, Kiva. Good afternoon, John. It's, um, you know, we, we've been communicating with each other over the Internet for a couple of years. Treasure trove of information. Kiva uh, also directs the Anima Center in New Mexico, which runs wilderness retreats, apprenticeships, consultations, and distance learning experiences. Good afternoon, Kiva. Good afternoon, John. It's, um, you know, we, we've been communicating with each other over the Internet for a couple of years here, and it's just, like, so amazing to hear your voice. <laughs> Thanks, John. It's great to talk to you, the, too. It's one of the biggest kicks I get out of this is I get to, oh, this is what they sound like. <laughs> participating in HerbMentor.com. It's such a great resource for so many people. Thank you. Let's just spend the interview just complimenting each other. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it wouldn't be hard. (laughs) You're so great. No, no, no. So, so, Kiva, um, you know, I know that uh, to to do this call, you had to travel to town, right? You had to get to leave your house. So I was like, wow, you must live in a rural area. So tell us about where you live, about the Anima Sanctuary, like what it's like there. The Anima Sanctuary is an 80-acre botanical and women's sanctuary, and it's an inholding within the Gila National Forest. And we're down here in the southwestern tip of New Mexico, and this is one of the most rural areas in the United States, including Alaska. And so where we live out in the National Forest, there's no running water and no electricity and no phone lines, which, wow. but it's so beautiful here, and there's a lot of intense wildness that you can't find in a lot of the rest of the country anymore. And though people think of this as desert, we're actually, this is southwestern mountains, and so we have a huge amount of biological diversity. In fact, I think the Gila is considered the most biodiverse region in all of the southwest. So what's, like, daily life like? Explain a day. Like, you get up in the morning and, you know, like, I just love to hear about what that's, well, you can kind of get a picture of what it's like to be out there. Most of the year, we sleep outside, so we usually get up when it gets light and when the birds start, which, depending on the time of the year, it could be <laughs> 5 in the morning, which is about what it's like now. Um, and we get up and Loba starts the wood stove and... I usually check emails because we have um, satellite internet that's solar powered. We have just enough solar power to run our laptops and and um, the stereo, so we can have good music. And then I and um, usually a lot of days I spend a good part of um, the morning working with herbs. 
putting together formulas for clients or talking to clients or um, doing a lot of wild crafting. And in the afternoons, I usually devote to um, doing a lot of stuff on the computer, writing curriculum and working on my book and writing my blog. Mm. And then evenings, it's the haul the water routine again and do supper. Oftentimes, Loba does a fire outside and we cook our supper over the fire and eat out there, especially in the summer when it's too hot to have the wood stove going in the cabin. Um, And so, you know, we work pretty much dawn to dark, but we love what we're doing, so it seems like a lot of fun, too. It doesn't sound like work, really. It's joy and it's fun. (laughs) Yeah, and we do a lot of, in the winter, we do more wood chopping, um, Mm -hmm. and we have to break through the ice to get to the water. All our wash water and drinking water comes from rainwater. So it's it's a lot of fun. It's very, you know, hands-on, keeps you from getting sucked into the computer too much. You know, it's 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 funny because I, I was when I was uh, making breakfast this morning, I had the local radio station on, and uh, they were talking about like like call in if you know anyone who who you know lives out there off the grid with no electricity and like makes you know and makes it and you know you know has that kind of lifestyle. Have them call in to the radio station. We want to hear about their you know. And I'm sitting there like, <laughs> wow, that's really weird. I'm going to be speaking with somebody in two or three hours about this very same thing. It's very funny. We've become a novelty item. <laughs> exactly. I'll have to give you their uh, their phone number. You can call them next. <laughs> so, um, you know, I there's such. I mean, you're you're how old are you? You're 27 or 20. I'm 27. I'll be 28 next week, actually. Oh, happy birthday to you! Oh, thank you. A cancer, huh? Yeah, definitely. Oh. I'm a quadruple <laughs> cancer, actually. Wow. We thought my son was going to be a cancer, but he ended up being a Leo. Yeah, my daughter too, just over the cusp. Oh wow! So you know, when I when I uh, for, so when I read your blog and your 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 understanding of the plants and of nature and everything is just you know so it's phenomenal. And I asked your age, and I'm like, wow, you know, I can't believe like there. It's just, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm just blown away by all that. And I just I I, I just was curious. Like, I want to know like how like. What led to you in this path? Like, how long have you been working with herbs? And but, you know, but what led? You, and also, what kind of formed your your life and your approach and everything? I know it's a lot of questions, but you kind of like get where I'm coming <laughs> from, right? Well, <laughs> I, I want think you to I've answer been, it how you want to. <laughs> I think I've been really, really into herbs since I since early childhood. You know, my mom has told lots of people stories about how when I was just an infant, I could crawl, I would crawl off the blanket to get, I would eat yarrow, and a lot of my first questions to my mom were, what's this plant, what's that plant, and um, so I studied herbs when I was really young, but didn't really start practicing until I came here to the Gila, Mm -hmm. and um, I think the plants here just, you know, talked a lot louder than anywhere else I'd ever been. And a lot of what's really forms my approach is um, traditional folk healing, what local Hispanic people have taught me. And even from when I was a child, one of the first things I learned was about using yarrow on my scraped-up knees from a local Hispanic grandma lady down the street in the ghetto. Mm-hmm. And so I think that 
it's really the you know the most hands-on basic things that you know your grandma teaches you about herbs that has informed what I do the most. Oh, okay. Um, and now my so, grandma, she's a city person. <laughs> well, one of my grandmas is too, but she was also still in the gardening. My mom loved gardening. We kind of rotated my family. We moved, sometimes we lived in complete ghetto, and sometimes we lived way out in very rural areas. And in either place, my mom was always re- really interested in edible plants. And um, she didn't know much about medicinal stuff, but she was happy for me to learn. And she gave me my own little garden plot when I was about seven years old and said, well, grow whatever you want. And I grew lemon balm and borage and yarrow and mint mostly. Um, and <laughs> well, well, just doing this, like how did you do – What do you recall like your – your conversations with the plants at that age? Like, what was that relationship? Because I I know how we look at it in our adult mind. It's analytical, and we're like, what's the name of this, and what's the uses, and I'm going to look in the book, and I want someone. But, gosh, through the eyes and playfulness of a seven-year-old, like, what was that like? Do you remember? Well, you know, I was really, really influenced at that age by a lot of the old European fairy tales. Mm. And their kind of take on the plants as these powerful, magical beings that could kill you or could heal you. or And so I kind of approached them that way. From the time me and my siblings were really small, we would name all the trees in our yard, um, and we thought that there were fairies living inside them. And so that's kind of my perspective on plants when I was little, is I was just sure that if I was quiet enough, I would hear them whisper to me. And so I spent a lot of time in my little garden with my head on the ground just looking at them. And I think that I've probably never really gotten over that particular sense of wonderment of being up really close to the plants. That's still my primary relationship is getting up close and touching them and tasting them and spending a lot of time with them. And that's more than any book and more than any teacher that's taught me what I know. And you still follow that. Oh, yes. Had to take time every day to lay under plants. That's 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 a nugget of gold for everybody on this call. <laughs> Listen, just take that advice. I agree wholeheartedly. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me. So um, now, how did this lead to your work? You talk about the medicine woman tradition. And I'm curious some about that approach and how that evolved and is this something you were mentored in or something you just kind of came to, you know, or spoken to, you know what I mean? Like how, yeah. I'm, I'm curious some about that approach and how that evolved and is this something you were mentored in or something you just kind of came to, you know, or spoken to, you know what I mean? Like how, how yeah. did this process happen for you? Well, I think that once again that comes back from my childhood of being really enamored of the fairy tales and of that particular archetype that often comes up of the witch that lives at the edge of the woods mm-hmm. who, you know, people don't think about her very often except for when they need to be healed. And so she lives at the corner of these dark woods but people go to her door and ask for herbs or ask her to come to the village to help them. And that was always kind of in the back of my mind, and it was in a lot of my writing when I was younger. And um, when I was in my doing some work 
restoring native plants to a disturbed environment, things like lady slippers and things. And, um, you know, and that really started my connection to um, healing the land first. And when I came out here to Anima Center, um, you know, the focus was on healing the land and reaching out and healing people through reconnecting them to nature. Right. And because we work primarily with women, um, which was not even a choice, really. It just kind of naturally happened that most of the people who come to the center are women. And as I taught more and more about that connecting to nature and taught about herbs, it kind of started refining itself down to a core set of teachings and understandings. And it slowly became the medicine tradition based around that archetype of women who are healers, and not just healers through, you know, fixing physical things, but through nourishing wholeness with food, with herbs, with lifestyle, um, and through connection with land. Thank you for, uh, that's, that's wonderful. And, and, and so when you were called, when you were, when you knew it was to heal the land too, and can you tell us about like how you reconnect people? You're out there living and like what are some what's a, a method or two you use to help people through that journey? Because I've been with uh Wilderness Awareness School, for example, for nearly twenty years and that's our mission there too. We have all kinds of ways that I've been you know, and I, I'm I'm there's I've I've seen so many different ways of people reconnecting. I like to use the word reconnect rather than connect because we're all have been connected. In Indeed. And it's a matter of just uh, cal- recalibrating or something. You know, restoring just, the relationship. Restoring the relationship. So so um, what's, 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 what's Kiva's way of, of, uh, of, 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 of transforming? Well, people are so different that it often, so it will be each person's way. And so we have a lot of different ways of approaching that because um, people, their, their relationship with nature, depending on who they are, will be broken off in different places. And so for some, um, for a lot of women in our culture, it will be with food because of the body image stuff that comes up for most women, especially I think women of my generation. Um, and so we teach them about wild foods and getting to know your food in person and about the amazing transformation of taking something wild into your body and it becoming part of you and you becoming more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be for some people um, do vision quests and they go out and they just spend time by themselves on the land with no distractions, sitting in one place for days at a time. Mm-hmm. And that's really connecting through observation and through just taking away all of the daily distractions. Um, For some people, it's through, you know, learning about herbs from medicine and the realization that they have the power to affect their own bodies. And for other people, um, sometimes it's just just coming out to the place and having a retreat in a cabin and just being surrounded by beautiful nature and eating wild foods and just the whole picture together, just experiencing that is a huge connection. So there's all these different ways. And it seems like there's almost unlimited ways in which um, people can do that. Mm-hmm. And the common thread is person outdoors. 
right? <laughs> nature <laughs> doing something. <laughs> well, just get anything out there. to get people to to open their eyes and see what's around them all the time. Um, Harvest think, dandelion flowers, you know, anything. Yeah, I think just that um, we can be extremely aware and connected to nature in cities, but it can be harder to open the awareness to begin with because there's so much noise and distraction going on for a lot of people. And so to just take away the distractions, even just temporarily, to be like, whoa, this is around me all the time. What's it saying to me? You know, to, to recognize plants and the land itself as, you know, sentient beings. Mm. Wow. You know, you talk about that. I mean, I know that, that – um that you know, I, I mean, everyone has their own ways of looking at things. I know different people have different philosophies about how things are created and how things are in the world. You know, whether we're religion or philosophy, they follow. But um, the notion of plants as sentient beings—I'd I'd just like to hear your opinion on that. Well, I think even from the most scientific perspective at this point, that we know that plants feel, experience, and express. Um, and when you get to a more subjective experience, even just growing a garden, you can see how different plants have different personalities um, and how they communicate with each other. You know, a lot of the more recent science stuff about how plants a lot of times aren't competing the way we thought they have been, but rather working in symbiosis through the bacteria in the roots and the soil and giving each other messages of, okay, you grow more, I'll grow less for this season, but next season I grow more and you grow less, and how so many plant relationships are, you know, very codependent, which is why a whole ecosystem is so important. And then when people come into that, I feel like often the plants are also trying to tell us things and that, you know, to really understand that we have to be more plugged in. And I'm not talking about people with or putting people personalities on plants necessarily. I'm not talking about little cartoon plants that talk to you like in, you know, kids' movies, but rather to appreciate their own kind of otherness of being alive and being sentient, but not necessarily like us. Right. And so if if we can recognize that, that we can be open to a lot more of what they're communicating to us in different ways, you know, through taste, through touch, through simple observation. Um, I mean, if you've ever been to the southwest in the middle of the summer and the heat's glaring down and it's frying everything around you and then you go down to a river where there's cottonwoods growing and you lay under a cottonwood and the whole quality of the air changes mm. and all of a sudden everything's cooler and wetter and it has this amazingly sweet, relaxing smell. And of course there's scientific explanations for all of that, for all of the chemical process. But, you know, if we can lay there and think, you know, what's it telling me? What's this tree giving me? What kind of gift am I receiving? Then I think if we can look at it from that perspective, then we understand and can work with the plants on a whole different level. Mm. So that's, that's, that's great because then 
I guess that's where I was kind of wondering because, like, because a lot of times when people will say, uh, say they get into plants and then someone else starts saying, well, the plant told me this, this, and this, and then that person who's just getting into it goes, ah, I mean, the plant's talking to you. These people are crazy. I'm out of here. That, yeah. that you know, it's, it's kind of like, no, no, we mean, you know, there are other levels of communication besides voices. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's taste, and, there's touch. there's. And we know that with, with animals even, too. We don't expect our dog to come up to us and start, you know, telling us that they want this and this for supper. But they certainly have very clear ways of communicating what they do want to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's true for most living things, that if we're just paying attention to each other, to the earth, to the plants, to the animals, then we'll become more and more aware of that. So I want to read you something that I, I, I from your website. <laughs> I forgot. And I want to tie this into what you were just saying, too. Um, so uh, you say that um, healing begins at home, growing from the same rich soil we spring from. The plant's medicine's lives are intertwined with ours, blooming uninvited outside the front door, growing from the terracotta pots on our kitchen windowsills and shooting up in the well-tended community gardens. And you go on to say traditional healers have known that the medicine we need uh, the most grows very near to us. And and I'm starting to think about when you talk about bioregionalism on your site, but also that also was I was realizing what you were just saying earlier about you know, gosh, there's so much more. You know, if we're talking about bioregionalism, I, I imagine you're also talking about right down to the bacteria and everything that lives in the ecology and not just the specific plant and its constituents, right? Yeah. So And so I, I'd like you to, to expand on this um, about uh, the importance of learning to use what's growing around us and how we fit into that and why we want to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, if you travel around the country, and I've lived in more than half the states in the United States, I think, um, they just the huge diversity. One a year? (laughs) For a long time. Two two a year. I've lived at the Anima Center for um, about four years now. It's the longest I've ever lived anywhere in my life. Wow, wow. But if you travel around, you see that there's just this huge diversity of ecosystems. And even in the places where we expect them to be barren, like the Sonoran Desert, there's actually so many plants and so much life if we take the time to stop and look. Now, um, a lot of what's in common use in herbalism is a certain set of herbs that are standard to almost every herbal and that don't necessarily grow where everybody lives. Mm-hmm. So. Part of the premise I work with is that nearly everyone lives somewhere where there's enough herbs to do whatever healing those people need to do um, on a daily basis. And Michael Moore has talked about this in his introduction to medicinal plants of the Pacific West, of that most curanderas, most traditional healers, don't work with more than 15, 20 plants. And if you can have an intimate relationship with those few plants, then you're doing great. And that may seem overwhelming at first, even for a beginner, like, oh, my gosh, 20 plants, you know. But if we start one at a time, and if we go out in our backyards or to a local park or to a wilderness area and check out what's growing there, at first we may only see 
a couple of things that may register as, you know, quote unquote medicinal plants. Mm-hmm. But that's just because so much of what medicinal plants are has not yet been explored by, you know, the literature that's available. Right. And so a lot of people want to know, like, what do I do with these weeds in my yard? What the heck are they? <laughs> you know, and why don't I have some more normal plant like comfrey or even dandelion if you live in the southwest you know i now i'm gonna have to grow this big garden because i don't have any of these things well maybe but maybe not um so you know you may have a really unfamiliar plant that you know from a field guide but you don't know anything else about it you can't find it in any of your herb books but you feel really drawn to it and so I teach people this process of going in and learning about that plant, and it may or may not work out to be a medicinal plant that you can use internally, but often it will be. And the first thing I think to do is to hang out with the plant and kind of get into why you feel called to it and what about it seems so intriguing to you and spend a lot of time watching it. And then to get a field guide, look it up, find out the botanical name they've given it. Um, And an important thing to do is to check and see if it has any toxicity, according to them. Don't use field guides as the be-all, end-all of toxicity because some of them are very overcautious, but use it as a baseline. Mm -hmm. And then then you find out what plant family it's in. And this is a really useful thing for beginning herbalists is to learn about plant families because often they'll tell us a lot about the plant. Um, if you're learning about, say, sage, and you learn about the mint family plants. And some of them are very, very different from each other, but they have a lot of things in common. Uh, many of them are aromatic. Many of them have a profound effect on the nervous system. Um, many of them clear stuck energy in the body, and so on. And so you learn those patterns. So you find out the plant family your plant is in, and you look at that, in that context, and you smell your plant, and if there's no toxicity, you taste it, and you kind of see what's going on and see if that fits into those patterns. And another really great resource for people um, is a lot of ethnobotany texts. And there's usually, it seems like there's an ethnobotany text for every area of the country almost. Mm -hmm. And to check out what the indigenous people of your area use the plant for. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, a, a free resource that's online is a lot of the old physiomedicalist and eclectic herbals that are free for anybody to look at. And there are these doctors that were using herbs as their primary treatment, um, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And about 100 years ago, I guess. Uh, and they have some amazing, amazing insights into many plants that we don't even consider medicinal plants anymore. Um, when I first started using the alder tree as medicine, I thought I had nothing to go on besides the fact that I felt like I really needed to work with this plant. Couldn't find it in any of my books. But when I looked it up in the physiomedicalist, um, a lot of my original impressions were validated by the experiences of these doctors, and that was really neat, and it gave me a whole lot more to go on. And there's, you know, there's probably a good hundred of those texts 
and many of them are online at Michael Moore's website or Henriette Kress's website for free to just look at. Yeah, and I think I have uh, links to those in the links section, at least yeah. to Michael's and Henrietta's sites on um, on the links section on Air Mentor. So you can just quite find, click there and then find these texts. And those are such a great resource and totally free, these huge old books. Um, and then a really important thing to do is to also ask the people where you live. And at first it may seem like no one knows what the heck you're talking about, but I've found in New Mexico especially that if you ask the old people, especially the old Hispanic people, they often know things about the plants that you'll never hear anywhere else, and they're just a profound resource. Um, And I think that can be true even in urban areas. If you ask old-timers who've been living in that area for a long time and whose family has been there, um, they may only know a little bit about a couple of plants, but they may know things you'd never learn otherwise. Um, and then there's also a lot of bioregional herbals, depending on where you live, that aren't real popular otherwise, but there's some good ones for the Appalachians. There's some great ones for the Southwest, and so to look up those. And then, but the most important important part about connecting to local plants is your own experience. So you've garnered some information, you've put together some, and that can be really valuable. But just one experience using that plant as medicine will just supersede all of the information. Because That's true. It, you learn it in your body. They call it learning it organi- organoleptically. Um, and your head can memorize all this, these facts. And that's great. And you hold it on as a storage of information. But those facts don't mean much until you feel it in your body or you see it work in someone else's body. I, I honestly, like, my brain is a sieve when it comes to the information in the books. I can't ever remember anything. And the only way I can remember is when I go and pick something and make something with it. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's another reason for using a small Materia Medica. You know, I work primarily with about 30 plants, and every single one of those plants I've used in my body, and I've felt what it does. If I tried to, you know, I really respect traditional Chinese medicine with their huge materia medicas, but so much of that knowledge is based in books and based on memorizing things until you get to know it. Mm-hmm. And I think that when most people are learning about herbs, the best way for them to get a, a grasp on it and to be able to practice it in their everyday lives is through that just a few plants at a time, starting off with one plant at a time, and, you know, drinking it as a beverage or taking it as a tincture or eating it as food and seeing what happens. Because mm-hmm. you'll never forget that, you know. One time of treating someone who has jaundice and who looks yellow and is having scary liver problems, give them a dandelion infusion and watch the yellow just drain away you'll never forget that no matter how many times you know you read it in a book nothing is profound as watching that yeah and then when you've had your own experience that makes like uh, the other day a friend came over where his kids were having these digestion issues and they had this stomach virus thing and all and and because i've successfully abused like chamomile right for the digestion stuff and my own kids and i had something similar plus experiences with lemon balm i was able to confidently say here take these and do this yeah and and, and then i felt like i was given them like 
you know, with confidence information rather than just... Yeah, instead of just passed on secondhand stuff. I mean, it may be the best herbal in the world, but, you know, I memorize a lot of information, but I don't repeat any of it back until I've used it. Uh Until I've done it at least once myself. Right. And so in my blog, you'll see me say, well, people say this, I haven't experienced this, but keep it in mind. Right. Um, but, and I love that because they're my favorite herb books. I can't wait for your books. My favorite herb books are are the ones that are from people who use the herbs in their think, stories. Yeah, like practicing that. herbalists are so – and for a long time there was such a dearth of that kind of herbal book too. And so much was – what people were buying as herb books was written by researchers and chemists and um, – people who are just, they call them armchair herbalists, who just read about it in some other book and repeated it into their book, which has passed on an awful lot of misconceptions about herbal medicine. And so when I recommend books to students, I say, especially in the beginning, don't ever, ever buy any herbs books that aren't written by a practicing herbalist. Yeah, yeah. Because, you, you know, when you're, especially when you're really impressionable and first learning, you want to make sure that what you're taking in is at least, you know, has a good chance of being correct and is, you know, applicable rather than some weird theory from a chemical test on a rat. That's why I usually say, you know, Rosemary Gladstone's book, Susan Weed's books, or Gail Edwards, you know. Or Matthew Wood. Michael and um, Michael Moore. Michael Moore, you know. definitely. Yeah, stuff like that is just the foundation of good herb books right now. And there's some more being written by people like Phyllis Light and Jim McDonald that are incredibly important, too, because we're getting, you know, there's the older generation of herbalists, and, but now there's been a couple of generations and more and more experiences accruing again because we lost so much for a while. Rosemary Gladstar was really, and Michael Moore, were some of the first to bring back some, what we now consider common knowledge, but it was pretty profound when it first came out, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Right. Right, right. So... Your book, um, what's the title of your book, Anabi? Do you have that? know that yet? It's called The Medicine Woman's Herbal. Okay. And it's a and, nice, simple title. <laughs> and and, and um, I, I noticed that, of course, you're going to have probably plant monographs in there, right, about herbs that you love. Yep. Um, but uh, what approach? Like, what's unique about like, – because I also noticed, like, I – some of the gold, like uh, Stephen Buhner said once when I took a workshop with him, he's like, he, you know, he's holding up one of his books. And he's like, yeah, see the first 30 pages? This is what I really write the book for. And then the rest of it is because the book companies like to have plant monographs. Yeah. <laughs> or something like that, he said, you know, so paraphrasing. But it was that notion that, like, really wanted to get across this in the first 30 pages. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, sometimes you have to comply with what publishers are yeah. telling you to do. But my approach is really simple, hands-on, down-to-earth, very experiential-based. So the first section of the book talks about um, just the basics of the philosophy behind using plants for healing, healing as wholeness rather than fixing things, rather than curing, um, food as medicine, and also the connection with nature, you know, all of these um, simple, basic concepts that the rest of herbal medicine really builds on. And then the second part of the book talks more about um, 
the, how to do that, how to use food as medicine, how to use local plants for medicine, how to harvest wildcraft and grow plants sustainably, um, just like the dirt part of it, of gardening and food and um, that kind of stuff. And then I have another part that's how to make medicine, you know, like in the kitchen kind of stuff. Right. Like, you know, how you grind it up, how you make things, you know, as in simple food-like stuff, not confusing, complex chemical procedures that require strange equipment, but stuff you can do in your kitchen. And since I have no electricity, a lot of them are based in the most simple ways, you know, stuff that um, indigenous peoples and people in third world countries are still using, just the simplest stuff that anybody can do. And then the last part is one part on plant monographs, and I think I'm going to have about 30 very in-depth ones because I really like in-depth monographs. I don't want a quarter page on something. That doesn't tell me that much, especially when you want to develop an intense relationship with a plant. Um, so I'm thinking more like, you know, five to 7,000 word monographs so that you have pages on whatever your plant, you know, that you feel called to use and not that you want to take my perspective and use it exactly the same way, but so that you have something to start from, some really good information yeah. instead of just, you know, an overview. And the very last part, some simple ways of approaching um, imbalances in the body. And the part I left out, it's one of the most important parts of the book, is a system of energetics applied to traditional Western herbalism that's um, not just conceptual, that you can learn through experience and hands-on stuff, which seems really, really important to me as one of the reasons I chose to write this book. So let's expand on this then right now because – I think a lot of the other stuff you just mentioned, we're kind of we kind of throughout this interview so far, we kind of can you know a person just listening the first time can get an idea of what you mean by all that. Mm -hmm. But let's so you wrote this, you're inspired by the energetics. You know what what are we talking about when we talk about that? Can you repeat that for me, John? Well, well, you talk this last part about energetics and and that that excited you to write the book. And so, what do you mean by that? Or can you give us an example of a plant or what you yeah. Or, so energetics, um, generally when I talk about herbal medicine, can mean the temperature, the humidity um, of the plant, or in the human body. And so if you think of the most obvious examples, like, say, cayenne pepper, what's the first thing you think when you stick a cayenne pepper in your mouth? Hot. It's hot. <laughs> hot, hot. And it's hot and dry. And you can just tell that by just what your body says, like, oh, my God, this is so hot, get it out. Um, mm -hmm. And if in the summer, when you're all overheated, if you um, take some marshmallow root paste, and it's like, oh, this is so cold. I mean, it just feels that way in your mouth. It's, mm -hmm. it's Whatever temperature the, the mallow root itself is physically, the way it feels in your mouth is like cold and slippery and, yeah. you know, wet, you know, moistening and slippery like that. And so that's the basics of energetics. And how that works is that so these herbs have these different properties that you can taste and they affect the body in certain ways um, and it doesn't even have to touch the part of the body 
So if you take mallow and you hold it in your mouth, mm-hmm. and if you have um, a really dry cough or your lungs feel like, you know, that winter heat thing you get from having it cold and then having the heat on your house too much, and so your lungs feel totally dried out, and you take some mallow and you hold it in your mouth, you can often feel your lungs just kind of relax and moisten and chill out. <laughs> and so that's energetics, and that's a very basic concept. And the reason that's so important is that we can talk about this herb for that ailment. You can say comfrey for a broken bone. You can say um, calendula for lymph problems. But, okay, there's 20 different herbs for lymph problems. Which one do you want? Right. Do I want cleavers? Do I want want red root? Do I want calendula? And so the energetics of the different herbs, if calendula is neutral and slightly warming while cleavers is very cool and red root is neutral, then if you look at the energetics of the body, um, then you can match it to the energetics of the herb. And so instead of getting a hit and miss of like, okay, this affects this organ system, and this is supposed to be for this, will it work? You have a much better idea of what you're doing. You know, you can work on a much more subtle, precise level with the plants. And you can still use them as a broadly applied food-like substance, but you can also treat um, imbalances in the body that are very specific that would be really hard to touch otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so... um, like an example of that would be if someone has a wound, like you, the first thing you want to look at is what's the energy of the wound. Because mm-hmm. sometimes it may be red and bleeding like crazy and very hot, and the person experiences the pain as a burning, slicing sensation. And so then you would want to use a cooling, soothing herb, mm-hmm. um, probably, you know, something like comfrey or mallow or any number of, or rose is a great one for that. But if the person, if it's an older wound and it's not healing and there's not a lot of heat, it's just kind of oozing and sitting there and not going anywhere no matter what you do to it, then you want something that's more stimulating and warming that will bring the circulation back to the wound so that the body can heal it. And so you would want something more like, um, goldenrod or cottonwood. Okay. And so you can see how you can make simple connections back and forth, and it can just make the whole learning of herbs so much simpler. And I think in a lot of other countries where they have long traditions of herbalism, this is common knowledge. Children grow up thinking this way about food and about medicine and about their own body. Um, for Western herbalism, that's become more of a, a harder concept for us to learn. So that's part of the foundation of how I teach herbs now and just basic healing and even how to use food is to begin from the first time someone starts to have a relationship with the plant to talk about energetics, you know, to find this language that helps us understand what the plant's communicating to us and what our bodies are communicating to us. Okay, okay. That's that's really helpful, and I... I, I know there's that two-volume set. It's super expensive, but Peter Holmes has those two-volume set of the energetics of Western herbs, which can be a helpful yep. resource. But that's and, um, really 
Matthew Wood talks about energetics quite a bit, too. Um, the important part about energetics, though, is to not take it just from books. You can look at books and see how they set it up, but to make sure that you're experiencing those energetics in your body. And you, if you read the reviews of the different books on herbal energetics, you'll see a lot of disagreements and criticisms and people arguing about it because there's no set system in the United States about how this works. So okay. at this stage in herbalism, um, it's so important for students, for people who are first learning, to experience it themselves and not just take it from a chart. Okay. Well, I can't wait to learn from you and your book. That's kind of <laughs> awesome. That's excellent. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a couple other main things I just want to ask you here, too, and, and, and one of them was almost going um, back to what we were a little bit what we were talking about earlier, but and, um, Rosalie was um, from Urbanter was wondering, um, actually, these next two things are great questions that she had, and she when she has uh, an example of, like, you know, say there's a plant growing in your area that you're really attracted to or you notice or you see around, and you can definitely find it in a field guide, but you can't find any information at all anywhere about it, like anywhere. And have you had that situation? And I know we were kind of alluding to some of it, but just kind of a more of a roadmap, simple roadmap on how you might try to find it. And I think that's good I ask this now because that may tie into the energetics a bit, won't it? Yeah, it definitely does. And that's part of the point of energetics so that you don't need books to tell you what's going on. Um, and my my list of steps before certainly applies to this, um, but if you can, really can't find it in any books and nobody you've talked to knows anything about it, which kind of happened to me when I was learning about monkey flower, and there's a little bit, little bit in the flower essence literature, and that's about it for this plant. Um, and the only thing I knew to begin with, that at some point it had been used as a food, so it probably was not toxic. And that's all I knew. But... If you hang out with this plant, it's just got this amazing personality. And it's got these, you, you probably have it up in the northwest too, but it has these crazy looking little flowers that look a little bit like sage flowers but are rounder. And it's just like living plant sunshine. I mean, I, the first couple times I hung out with it, I was, wow, this plant is just so happy. <laughs> um, and very, you know, just that was my impression personally and emotionally of like this plant is all about happiness and about childlike sunlight kind of stuff and but there's nothing about that really in any of the literature so knowing it wasn't toxic I decided to try it so I tinctured up some of the flowering plants um, and I used it on myself and I wrote down my first impressions this is really important if you any tincture you use even if you've read a ton about it but Put some of the plant, put some of the tincture in your mouth mm -hmm. and just sit with it and record your emotional impressions. And if you want to go deeper than that, you can, um, like, watch your pulse, keep your fingers on your pulse and see how it affects that. Um, and feel through your body and the different organ systems, like, is it doing anything? And, it, you know, some of that will be completely subjective. But if you're really paying attention, sometimes you'll have a complete revelation of, oh, my God, I can't, you know, like with the mallow, like if you hold it in your mouth when your chest hurts, that we well, uh -huh. how did that happen? And so I did that with the monkey flower and just that effect of happiness, like a calm, centered, um, 
just super childlike joy that comes about when you take it. And then I started using it in other people, especially for people who were feeling the total opposite of that, either super depressed and like the childlike play was about the furthest thing from their mind, or people who were in the midst of some kind of hysteria or very traumatic incident and they couldn't calm down because they were so worked up. And in both cases, I would see the plant, just a few drops, bring people back to their center. Um, and I wouldn't tell them what it was. I wouldn't tell them what I thought of it. I would just give it to them. And they'd be like, tell me how it felt to them. And I would see the evidence in them. And through that, I also learned that monkey flower works really well for people who are a little strung out on some kind of stimulant, whether it's caffeine or a too stimulating herb or a drug even. It can help bring them back from that kind of hysterical nervous edge to a grounded place. Um, and all that's just through experience. And there's nothing about the herb except for in box flower essences, really. And I think there's some in the ethnobotanical literature about using it on wounds. But all of what I described is through experience. And so Matthew Wood, one of the ways he does this, is he doesn't even take it internally. He'll put a few drops on the person's wrist, and he'll check out and see if their pulse changes or if the quality of their skin changes. And so part of the ways of learning that is to teach yourself to be super aware and super observant, to pay attention to every little change in the body, in the plant, and the person you're working with. Mm. Um, and that's what so much of herbalism and healing and working with the plant is about, is awareness. You, you know, you know, it's, I just I can't believe I really haven't made this connection with using herbs with me personally, but... Like as a five-element acupuncturist, I where we 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 primarily work on a, a spirit emotional level, and then that then heals the physical body because when the spirit is feeling all right, you know, the body is less stressed and it can do its thing. Mm -hmm. And um, you're saying this here, I was like, wow, how come I've never really tried to feel that emotional change within myself when using an herb? I, I, it's never. This is a revelation. Thank you. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> and I think that, you know, as you know from acupuncture um, and just in general common sense, that there is no real separation between our emotions and our spirit and the body. So if something is messed up emotionally, even something as chemically diagnosable as bipolar syndrome, there's also a manifestation directly in the body. And so I've found that often you can work with bipolar through nutritional stuff, but at the same time, you can sometimes um, have amazing healing experiences treating something like MS or Lyme's disease through something that supposedly is just affecting you more emotionally. And so the balance goes both ways, and to not discount either when you're working with a person, which is why a lot of herbalists use flower essences, I don't tend to use flower essences. I usually just use a smaller amount of a tincture, and just I think of all plants as having the same kind of effect as flower essences can, and work from that place so that you're affecting physical, emotional, you know, quote unquote vibrational stuff all at the same time. So you're you're putting your intent. Yeah, um, and I think that every plant, like how they talk about with flower essences or homeopathy. You know, they'll talk about a very specific 
symptom, symptom pattern that will make a plant most appropriate for this person. Um, and if you work with herbs the same way and take into account energetics, then you're so much more addressing the whole person rather than just a physical symptom mm -hmm. or just a physically diagnosed disease. That's that's really that's very that's really enlightening. Thank you. <laughs> um, so so that 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 answers that whole question. Thank you for about the you know learning the. Uh, see, I'm still I'm, I'm I'm. It's funny when they're doing an interview, but then you're really getting into what you're saying, and so I have no idea what I was going to ask next because because <laughs> you do an interview, you have to half stay in the world of what you're asking next and what you're half in the world. Well, it means it must have been an interesting. But I get so answer. wrapped up in what you're saying, I'm like. Where am I? <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. We're recording an interview. <laughs> so I'll get to. So this another thing I was wondering about Kiva was. Uh, let's see now. Okay, good thing I have some notes, huh? Um, is uh, something I've been impressed on your on your blog too is um, your exploration of traditional methods of preparations, like um, for example. Uh, Lard, right, and saps. And mm -hmm. Where's that going? Is there something in the book mentioning that? I know you use tinctures, and of course, tinctures is using something that if we have to get processed. You know, mm. I mean, uh, a yeah. lot of the times when we may, um, of course, we don't have you know with uh, distilled alcohols and whatnot. So, uh, what about all that? Or do you address that in the book, or is this something? Yes, kind of definitely. I'm, I'm going to use, of course, tinctures in the book because. It's so simple for people to do that, and it's a very um, it's a very accessible way of getting into herbs and getting people to take herbs. But a lot of the whole chapter, that section of the book on medicine making, um, mm -hmm. is called the Medicilomens Mono and Matate. And a Mono and Matate is in the southwest a traditional kind of mortar and pestle made out of a huge slab of rock and another round rock that grinds things, um, specifically herbs and corn and different grains. And the whole beginning of that section is all about traditional approaches to medicine making um, and to make them as easy and as interesting and as accessible as making food and using the same tools for the most part. Because, like I said, I don't have electricity. I don't have access to a lot of fancy things. And the price of alcohol being what it is, a lot of times I can't afford that either. So I've looked at what did traditional people use before they distilled alcohol um, before, you know, they used DMSO as a solvent and all this stuff. So in what's the most sustainable? What can I get from right here? And that's one of the reasons for the lard is it's an animal fat. I already eat wild meat. Um, and I'll, I may eat the fat, but in some cases, like a beaver tail, um, it may make more sense or from a bear to use the fat for medicine because the fat in itself is healing. And to this day, here in Katrin County, which is one of the most backwoods places in the country, um, mm -hmm. people, if you ask them, you know, what do they use for salvage? Bear fat. <laughs> um, and so, and also to make things as affordable as possible. I mean, what can be cheaper than weeds from your yard and some boiling water? Mm -hmm. um, so that people don't think that there's some kind of financial investment in herbalism. There's not. I mean, right. you need some glass jars. That's about all. Right. And 
so that even children can do it. My seven-year-old daughter can make an infusion. Um, she can. She knows how to make salve with lard because it's only really a one-step process instead of several steps. Um, and to take it back down to the basics, what can I get here if I didn't have any access to um, any grocery stores or a liquor store or any of that? If only within my own little canyon, what could I make? And so I have water and I have plants and I have animal fat and I have fermentation. And that's a, a great... Hmm? Yeah, sorry, go ahead, right. But the fermentation is really interesting, too, either through lacto-fermentation or traditional, you know, wild yeast in the air fermentation to make wines. And I've been working with that more and more, too, of making, you know, what they call the old-time tonics, um, like the elderberry tonic, which is just homemade elderberry wine, sometimes a little bit concentrated. And sometimes I make the wines, and then I add herbs back into them to macerate in the wine, um, oh. So that it's a low alcohol tincture, basically, and so you need more. But being an organic, um, natural wine, you're not going to have much negative effects from it. I mean, unless you drink a whole lot. <laughs> right. But and so that's one way that you can make your own easy tincture, basically for free. You need some kind of sweetener and an herb and some water, and usually that's all. And it can last for a really long time. And that's one that I haven't seen discussed much because people tend to think of wine making and fermentation as a very complicated process. But I mean, if you look at Central and South American indigenous peoples, well, that, I mean, that's Keith, That's because it got taken over by men, and men make the and they, they like the gadgets, and they make the wine stores where they try to sell you all the gadgets you need to make toys, wine. And they don't yeah. realize. Well, they don't realize all you need is a plastic. <laughs> all you need is a bucket. And some yeah. Fruit. yeah. <laughs> I think the problem is like so many things that became somewhat institutionalized, and people saw that they could sell you stuff. Right. They could sell you beer, and so they told you you could make it for yourself. And this right. has been going on for a long time, and. Um, in Europe, you know, a thousand years ago, the church decided, um, the Catholic church at that time decided that, you know, you couldn't use certain herbs in your brewing. You could only use hops. And that right there, the, that was the beginning of regulation of um, some of the fermentation processes. And that changed already what was going on medicinally with making the homemade wines and things and the beer because before they were using um, like yarrow and rosemary and all different kinds of things for different effects, and then they regulated it down to that. And then after a while, they started telling you that you have to buy it from them. And then for people, it's just like with the healthcare system, people become because very Jesus disempowered. Said, Jesus said that thou shalt only use hops and buy your beer from me. Yeah. <laughs> so the church spread that to all the people. <laughs> I don't think he said that. No. no. I'm afraid that in that time period, though, when um, it wasn't very much about spirituality, it was more about no. religion as government. As government, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But so there's so this, it's so simple, and that's really one of my goals to teach people. This is easy. You can make this phenomenal multi-purpose medicine just by putting, pouring some honey over rose petals mm. I mean, and letting it sit for a week, you know, and then you have something that you can use for hundreds of different problems. And you don't need 
500 different preparations. You don't need expensive things bought from strange companies in other countries, you know. Well, tell us, speaking of just talking about rose, you're, tell us about your rose vinegar and your sun soother inspiration. Well, that's, you know, being here in the Southwest and having a lot of people come here from different parts of the country and sometimes different parts of the world, they come in summer, often people will get sunburned because they don't recognize how intense the sun is here compared to where they're from. So I've dealt some with some terrible sunburns, um, some sunstroke, some things that look potentially very dangerous. And so one of the first things I learned how to do was treat those. And my first tries were always salves because that's what I read in books. And I don't some of the herbs seem to help with the healing, but often if you burn yourself in the stove and you put salve on it, it just feels worse for a while. At least that's been my experience. And so I tried. I made rose vinegar for salad dressings and, you know, other medicinal purposes. And um, so I tried it on a woman who had an awful, awful sunburn. Like her body was blistered and unfortunately the sunburn had gone pretty far along. But using the rose vinegar, which is just simple apple cider vinegar with rose petals infused in it for four weeks, um, and applying it to her, all the burn spots over and over, um, probably a full application once an hour for a couple of days, it all went away. In a day and a half, all of the heat left the burn. And um, she barely peeled, which was, when you're covered in blisters, it's amazing. Wow. Um, and so I've used this over and over now, and it's become something I carry with me almost everywhere. And you can put it in a spray bottle, too. Usually I dilute the vinegar, so it's one part vinegar and about seven parts cool water. You can put it in a spray bottle, or you can dip a cloth into it um, and just keep that area pretty saturated, and you'll be amazed how quickly you, you all the make, You make, you make the rose petals in the whole vinegar, but then after you've made it, you're diluting it and putting it in your bottle. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. make it like a regular infused vinegar so that... If you're using fresh rose petals, you fill the jar to the top and cover it with vinegar and let it sit for four weeks. If you're using dried rose petals, you can use, you can fill the jar about halfway full or a third of the way full and cover it with vinegar. And then usually when I'm going to, I don't strain my stuff that much because I like the plants to stay in there. But So I'll pour off whatever vinegar I want into a bowl or into a bottle and then put, dilute it with the water. And for every application, I dilute it again because it won't preserve as well. Um, if you dilute the whole thing, obviously. And, I mean, you can use a straight vinegar, but it's really powerful even diluted, so it's a, you know, money-wise kind of situ- you know, solution right. to making it last longer. Great. Good, good, good tip. So that's, so that's yet another example of just another simple traditional method because you have vinegar, which is something else you can make yourself. Vinegar is so easy to make. I've made it by accident several times. <laughs> I thought I was making, you know, apple wine, and suddenly it was vinegar. Well, it's not such a bad thing in the long run, right? No, it's great. <laughs> and if you make if you make any kind of fruit wines, it's very easy to make the fruit vinegars too, which will also work, you know, out of peaches or berries or whatever. Whatever you accidentally come up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the great thing about the fermentation too is there's, you know, vinegar is a, a side benefit, and it tastes good too. It's such a natural, easy process. People think you need to buy fancy things from stores, the different kinds of yeast, and I have yet to ever even try that. I've only used 
wild yeasts that are on the fruits and in the air. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That's great. I'm always so, um, you know, that for me, it's I, I often am like, okay, I don't want it to mess up, you know, so I'm just going to use this yeast because, you know, this other time it actually, you know what I mean? Like, so. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I've not really had it go off yet, but the, the thing to do, too, is if you do it once and you get it really right, well, then you can save some of that wine or whatever, the dregs of it, and use it to inoculate another batch. Good point. Just like with yogurt, so that it just keeps on going and you get that really good ferment every time, which is what indigenous peoples did. They used clay pots to ferment things, and then they didn't wash out the pot when it was when the vessel was empty of right. the drink. They just left that bacteria down there and kept it in a cool place, and they just refilled it when they were going to make it again. Oh, wow. That's that, Yeah, of course, and it's impermeated in the pot. And yep. Because the clay is kind of porous, I think it holds on to it. Mm. There's so much for sterilization, right? <laughs> yeah, why, <well, I> really? <laughs> exactly, uh, overrated. <laughs> At least in this case, yeah. At least in this case, yeah, exactly, right. Oh, definitely, good point. <laughs> so uh, before we wrap it up, I was wondering, you know, on Herb Mentor this month, we're, uh, we're um, studying, uh, and this is this is July 2008, we're recording this, and... Uh, um, and uh, I was wondering if any experiences with red clover, any wisdom that you had or knew much experiences? Or well, uh, red clover grows in small patches along the river here, um, and it's not a native plant, but it's a really useful European plant that was brought over. And I don't usually get the huge amounts that people do in other parts of the country just because there's little bits, but... Rhiannon, my daughter, especially loves it, and so we always end up gathering some, and whatever she doesn't eat, I get to use as medicine. Um, and generally, when I think of red clover, my experiences with it have been as a real general nourisher and really mineral-rich tonic. So when anybody looks, with, you know, what I call blood deficient, which is a lot of times varying forms of mineral deficiency and anemia and things like that, um, Red clover is really appropriate there. And something that's really nice about red clover is that unlike some of the other tonic herbs, it's very neutral and it's not too drying. Um, for some people in this climate, nettles and dandelion can be too drying because they make you pee a lot and it dries out your system. But red clover helps you hold on to the moisture and it's got a nice sweet taste. It makes a nice iced infusion type thing for little kids instead of Kool-Aid or whatever. And so just for, especially for people who look deficient, who feel weak or tired, just to give them a really good, you know, energy boost and mineral boost in the body, which, you know, we consider ourselves kind of an overfed nation because of all of the access to food we have, but we're really a very minerally deprived culture. And it's so important, and this is one of the reasons infusions have such a um, profound effect on a lot of us, is because we're not getting the minerals from our food like we should, either because the food is empty of minerals because of farming practices or because we're doing other things like drinking soft drinks or a lot of refined carbs that strip the minerals right back out of our body. So for a lot of people, just the simple act of drinking, drinking something as mineral-rich as red clover can have a huge impact on our sense of well-being, and general health. 
And so when I use red clover, I tend to almost always use it in a nourishing infusion. And so that's how I usually use the red clover. Like I say, the mineral mineral deprived. See, that's exactly why instead of diamonds, gold, you know, those uh, giving those to my wife for anniversaries and celebrations, I usually give her seaweed because it's, it's it's the minerals that really, you know, showing my love. I <laughs> <laughs> I put this little video on Herb Mentor where I just went kelp gathering and I came back. It was on our anniversary and I came back with a kayak full of kelp and my <laughs> and I said happy anniversary. <laughs> Well, and, and really, in our culture with the chronic diseases, it's serious. I mean, it's funny, but it's serious too. That one of the greatest gifts we can give our family is real nourishment, mm-hmm. because I mean, where I live in the Southwest, and there's a lot of Indian reservations, and there's a lot of poverty here. Um, you see so many diseases like chronic fatigue, like fibromyalgia, like type two diabetes, especially. Um, and stuff related to that that comes specifically often from just god-awful nutritional deficiency. Oh. I mean, it's with, the, with insulin resistance and the metabolic syndrome, which is one of the biggest problems in our culture, like one of the biggest medical diseases there are, and it can almost always, always be nearly cured by nutritional approaches. So I feel like that may be the most important thing we can do for our families and for ourselves is good, you know, nutrient-dense food. And seaweed is an excellent example of that, which I think is why people throughout the country traded all kinds of valuable items for seaweed, um, even inland, to get those minerals. Right, right. They knew. Of course. And. And all wild foods, I mean, if you look at Chinese medicine, they often consider um, any wild foods a tonic food. And they may not have known why, but they saw the effects of um, the mineral density, the nutritional density, um, having this overall healing impact on the body, especially on people who are deeply depleted. Right, 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 right. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you. That's that's X. Thank you so much. I, once again, I'm just getting into the response. I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> so great. <laughs> I have so much wisdom. Um, it was, you know, I I, I want to share with people too that uh, you know, you can they can go right now to bearmedicineherbals.com. Do you have another URL or is it just Bear Medicine Herbals for your blog? For the blog, that's it. Yeah, I, I used to have a different one, but I simplified it into that. B e a r at Bear uh, Medicineherbals.com, and you can. Right on the top left, there's a little box. You put your email address in, and every time Kiva has an update or a new article, uh, it will get emailed to you that that's there, and you can click and check it out. And um, and also, I'm happy to announce that pretty soon, and been a bit busy, but pretty soon, uh, we'll be um, taking bits of pieces of chunks of that wisdom from your blog, and we'll be uh, making a column on Herb Mentor. And uh, I'm excited. Thank you for letting us do that. Oh, and thank you for doing it. I'm I'm very excited about it as well. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Um, so, wow. I mean, any any uh, last uh, parting words of wisdom for uh, folks before uh, on 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 using? I know you've probably said it in so many different ways, but on using uh, herbs simply in our lives because that's what I'm getting. I mean, I know you. Your name of your book is 
medicine, women's herbal, women's herbal, and and even you know the name of your blood. But of course, we mean all people, right? I mean, yes, absolutely. And, um, and I think perhaps having... the best wisdom that I've been able to utilize in my life is to keep it simple, make it about relationships with your body, the plants, and the land, and to make it experience-based. I mean, in those three things, if if you keep those as your primary foundation to what you're doing, um, the whole experience will be rewarding, and it will be so much easier that way. Thank you. That's 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 it. I mean, that's why we just say uh, learning herbs, right? Herbal medicine made simple. It's, it's the people's medicine, as Susan Weed has said Indeed. so often. So, I mean, Kiva we... Rose, go ahead. No, it's okay. No, well, okay. If you want to say something else, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say that we don't expect experts to deliver our food to us. You know, we don't need some high and mighty chef to give us, you know, to cook or grill our meat for us. We know how to do that for ourselves. And we may enjoy somebody else's recipes. We may enjoy other people's cooking. We may need that inspiration from time to time, but when it comes down to it on a day-to-day basis, you know, we have the power to do that for ourselves. And the basics of healing are the same, that we have, that we can empower ourselves to affect our health and to have direct relationships with the plants without an intermediary. Um, and that doesn't mean that sometimes we shouldn't ask for help, but it means that the, the foundation of it comes from us and our direct experience. Excellent. And that's what it comes down to. Thank you so much. So, Kiva, thanks for joining us today. And it's, it's been really enlightening. And, yeah, it must be the um, southwest sun. I don't know. You, <laughs> <laughs> you, bring, you brought the sun. You brought the sunshine to, our, to, the, to the Internet. As you, as you do. That's what you do. That's what your site feels like. It's like you go there and it's like you're hanging out in the southwest with you. It's like having that sunshine. I love it. Well, thank and we you, definitely John. look forward to your book. Very much look forward. And believe me, if you're an Ermentor member, you will know when it comes out. <laughs> we will make plenty of announcements. <laughs> so, once again, thanks so much, Kita. Thank you. Besides her blog and upcoming book, you can also study the Medicine Woman tradition by signing up with Kiva for a year-long Medicine Woman core or herbal correspondence course. Courses feature monthly lessons, questions, and assignments, personalized instruction and whole living, as well as the spirit and uses of medicinal plants. And for those interested in studying at the Anima Sanctuary, each summer Kiva offers a student resident internship that lasts from two to eight weeks. You can get information on all of this at www.anima.org. Summer Kiva offers a student resident internship. Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com is a production of LearningHerbs.com. Visit LearningHerbs.com for free herbal lessons, including Herb Mentor News, Home Remedy Secrets, and Supermarket Herbalism. You'll also find the Herbal Medicine Making Kit and our board game Wildcraft. Herb Mentor Radio, copyright LearningHerbs.com, all rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening. Craft. Herb Mentor Radio, copyright LearningHerbs.com, all rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening.